Well, it's good to see you all tonight. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus minister here with, with RUF, and if this is your first time at Large Group. Just want to welcome you and say that we are really glad to have you with us. Um, as we sang earlier, we hope that you find RUF a place where you can come as you are with your beliefs and with your doubts, um, because we want to be a campus ministry that welcomes all sorts of Davidson students from all parts of campus, the convinced and the unconvinced, as you heard Eric mention earlier, um, the, the, the student athlete and the athletic student and the unathletic student. Um, I would say the unstudious athlete, but this is Davidson. I don't know if those exist here. Um, but if that's you, if you do exist, if you're a unicorn here, um, we welcome, welcome you as well. If you weren't here last week, what we're doing during the first four weeks of this semester is we are looking at what the Bible has to say about our human condition. We're calling this, this short series, Tracing the Image of God Through the Story of Scripture. And the reason why we're doing this um, at the start of the school year is we need to be reminded that it's not just okay, but it's actually good to be human. We're not, we're not called to be uh, superhumans. We're, we're human beings, not human doings. And, and that's what, that's what the scriptures remind us. Um, as one pastor scholar, Zach Eswine, puts it, Christianity is an apprenticeship with Jesus toward recovering our humanity and through his spirit helping our neighbors do the same. So that's what we're going to talk about um, today and the, for the next couple weeks. Um, you might remember if you were here last week, we were in Genesis 1 and 2 and we were in the story of creation. And among other things, we saw that that Jesus has been calling us not to be more than human, but to be more human. Not only that, we saw that as the Lord of creation, Jesus is able to satisfy our deepest longings and yearnings for Eden, for the world as it was meant to be. And he does this by bringing Eden to us. But here's something we didn't talk about last week, that we will this week. Why aren't we still in Eden? Why the gap? I mean, if God made everything good and made human beings in his image filled with dignity and honor and glory, why, why isn't Eden the world that we still live in? Why instead do we live in a world that's filled with pain and suffering and pollution and corruption? That's what we're going to be talking about tonight from Genesis 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at this passage, which has commonly been referred to as the fall. And before I say another word, I kind of want to give just one big, massive disclaimer. I just want to slap like a big red warning sticker on everything that I'm going to say after this. We're going to be touching on some dark subject matter. Uh, I mean, we are going to be looking at the origins of all violence and greed and corruption and racism and every other sin and evil that you can imagine. It's not the most cheerful of subjects for 8.30 on a Tuesday night here at Davidson College. But here's what I want to point out from the outset. Though Genesis 3 gets really dark, it's not without glimmers of hope. And the reason for that is because it's still part of God's story of redemption, his meta-narrative of redemption. So look for those 
glimmers of hope. If you start to feel a little bit down, a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit depressed even, uh, I would ask that you hang in there. Try not to leave halfway through um, because, like I said, we are going to see some hope here in this passage this morning. Before I say another word, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help tonight. Would you pray with me? Father, we do need your help. We need your help uh, every time we gather together to worship you and to hear from you. Um, but Lord, especially tonight, especially as we talk about Genesis 3 and and the fall and mankind's rebellion against you, um, we ask that you would remind us of your grace and your loving kindness, even in the midst of our sin and our rebellion. Uh, Lord, would you please, even from this Old Testament passage, um, would you please give us a more beautiful and believable vision of Jesus, our Savior tonight. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, the... My senior year at, at Davidson, here at Davidson, um, I had a, a couple of an electives to burn, and I, um, I decided to take Italian Renaissance art with Dr. Sarah Brennikov, and, and I'm told that she still teaches here, uh, which is awesome. I loved Dr. Sarah Brennikov. I loved her class, and in particular, I loved learning about this technique that was used by these 16th century Italian artists, and I might butcher this this word. Elizabeth, you can tell me if I'm butchering this word because it's Italian. But it's this technique called chiaroscuro. Close? Perfect? Okay, I'll just take close. Chiaroscuro. Um, and basically what this technique is, it, it it's when an artist, it could be a painter, it could be a drawer, it could be a sculptor, but when he creates or she creates this dramatic interplay between lights and dark. And and that dramatic interplay between the dark and the light really makes the subject matter jump out of the canvas or of the wood carving or of the sketching. The the people, the figures, the whatever the subject matter jumps out at you and it almost get kind of gives it a 3D quality. It's really amazing. And a couple of years after I graduated, this was several years ago, um, I came across this quote, and this is how I want to open tonight, um, by a theologian. And I'm going to paraphrase what he had to say, um, but it, it's I think it's quite profound and it's going to help us tonight. So he said that the gospel story is painted in chiaroscuro without the darker hues of the fall of sin, of rebellion then our redemption is in 2D. It remains two-dimensional and flat on the page. What I love about that is that it, it highlights the need for us to see our redemption in light of our tragic fall and rebellion against the Lord. You might remember the analogy I used last week where I talked about jewelers who take diamonds and put them in front of a black velvet backdrop so that their radiance, their sparkle, their brilliance actually pops, and we can see it more clearly. That's what I hope we see tonight from Genesis 3. And really, I've just got two points. Um, we're going to be looking at the tragic, uh, the tragedy of our rebellion against God, but then also the triumph of our Redeemer. So two points, the, the tragedy of our rebellion and the triumph 
of our Redeemer. Uh, so look with me at the beginning of chapter 3 um, in your handouts, or if you have a Bible with, uh, with you in your Bible. And two things about the tragedy of our rebellion. First, the nature of our rebellion, and then the consequences of our rebellion. Look with me at the first verse, uh, first couple verses. I'll read them for us. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Moses, the author, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So the first thing I want us to see is the nature of our rebellion. And to to really and truly understand just the tragic nature of our sin and rebellion, we need to consider how this story would have struck the ears of its original audience, its original listeners. And the original audience or recipients of this story would have been ancient Israelites, recently freed from slavery in Egypt, having wandered through the desert for 40 years. That's the first people that, that, that heard this story. How did they hear this? And for a little help to understand this, we're going to turn to an unlikely source, Indiana Jones. So Indiana Jones, what is it that Indiana... Um, is most afraid of snakes that's right it comes up in every movie he's afraid of snakes he's terrified of snakes and and why is that well it could just be that most people are afraid of snakes um, i mean um, this past summer we were getting ready to sell our house and move here from greenville to davidson and so i was going through the yard and trying to make everything look nice and spraying some weeds and I went up on this, this little hill next to our driveway and I was, had the backpack sprayer on. I was spraying the weeds and I looked down and there was a black snake between my legs. And y'all, I am, um, in the morning right after I wake up, um, five foot nine. Um, if I immediately put on my thickest soled shoes, I'm maybe five foot ten. Um, even, even then I don't come close to like touching the rim of a, of a basketball hoop. Right when I when I really try my hardest, but that afternoon when I saw that snake, if there was a basketball hoop above my head, I think I could have like backwards dunked it. That's how high I leapt off the ground. We're all afraid of snakes. Um, those of you that went to the to see the hypnotist, um, you know the power of just suggestion. You know, uh, people were terrified of this leather belt because the hypnotist convinced them by suggestion that that they were holding a snake. But why is Indiana afraid of snakes? And not just afraid, but deathly afraid of snakes. You might remember in the last crusade when he's on top of the train and falls into the, into the pit with all the vipers and the snakes as a teenager. He's terrified of snakes because he had this traumatic experience with them that he just couldn't shake throughout the rest of his life. Now, the closest you or I have ever come to a snake is either at a zoo or like me, maybe in your front yard or in your garden. 
But if you were an ancient Israelite, you recently had a very traumatic experience with a bunch of snakes. You know, you or I, I'm hoping, have never lost someone close to us to a lethal snake bite. If, if you have, I'm really sorry. That's, that's terrible. But I'm guessing most of us haven't had that scenario. But if you were an ancient Israelite hearing this story, you, re- you would have remembered what happened along the way in the wilderness when fiery snurpins came out. Hello. Um, and, and killed and, 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 and attacked your friends, your relatives, your family members. Here's the point. Here's what I'm trying to get at. As you're listening to Moses tell, tell the Genesis story, he's telling it to you for the first time. You'd never heard it before. You're on the, um, you're in the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. You're, you're waiting to go into the promised land. You're listening to Moses tell you the story. And he's just told you about the goodness of creation. God created everything out of nothing, and it was all very good. And we're made in his image. And then you come to, to the first verse, even in Hebrew, the first word in chapter 3, and it's now the serpent. Immediately, you would have jumped out of your skin. Your blood pressure would have spiked. The hair on your arms and your necks, your, your neck would have stood up. Because your experience of snakes is, they're, they're lethal. They're dangerous. They're deadly. And so again, you're listening to this story that starts really, really good. And then all of a sudden, a snake appears. What does that teach us about the nature of our sin and rebellion? The first thing that we see is that it's an intruder. It's an intruder to God's good world. That it's out of the ordinary, it's unnatural, it's not supposed to be there, as as one author puts it, that for the title of, of his book, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And again, if you're an ancient Israelite, that would have clicked subconsciously and immediately. But what else do you learn as you continue to listen to Moses tell the story of the fall? A couple things, a couple things I want to point out. Um, as you keep reading you recognize that the serpent speaks to the woman, Eve. It says, in, in again, verse 1, He said to the woman, Did God actually say? And I'm going to pause right there. Um, he doesn't address both of them, but he actually singles one out. Sin and rebellion and, and temptation starts with this kind of divide-and-conquer strategy. Let's get, let's get you isolated. And that's what the serpent does. He gets Eve isolated. And then what does he say? He says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, first of all, this is, this is, this is really interesting because the first words out of the serpent's mouth is this subtle, covert lie. Because God didn't say they may not eat of any tree. They could eat of all sorts of trees. There was just one tree that they couldn't eat of. But from the beginning, the, the crafty serpent, as he's described, gives that subtle lie and that covert lie, and it gets Eve thinking. 
And so look at Eve's response in verse 2. The woman says to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. I'm sorry, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Her statement's partially true, but she's also taken God's command and intensified it on her own. God never commanded her not to touch the tree in the middle of the garden. So right there, you can see something's going on. All of a sudden, God is more restrictive in Eve's mind than he actually is in reality. Then look look what happens in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, and here he goes from covert lie to overt lie. The serpent says, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Direct contradiction to what God had said, because God did say that they would die. And then he throws in some truth and entices and allures Eve by saying, you're going to be like God. Your eyes will be opened. And so at that point, the the trap is set. The snare is set. And so it's not all that surprising what we read in in verse 6. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. She saw it was tasty. It looked really good. That the tree was desired to make one wise. Man, I'm going to be smart and and have have wisdom and intellect. She took of its fruit and ate. And then here's, here's something that's really curious. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Last thing I want to point out about the nature of our of our sin and rebellion, um, there's always going to be some passivity involved. Someone's going to let their guard down. And in this case, we realize that that was Adam. Even though the serpent was talking directly to Eve, whenever he says you, so look, look with me at verse 1 when he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then in verse, in verse I believe it's 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. All those yous and yours are plural. So he's talking to Eve, but Adam's there with her. And that's what we see in verse 6. After she eats of it, all she has to do is turn to her husband Adam, who was there with her, and give it to him, and then he eats it. As that famous quote goes, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Or in this case, for one good man to do nothing. So we've seen a few things about the nature of our sin and rebellion. Um, first of all, it's an intruder. It's not supposed to be there. Second of all, it, it is um, filled with both covert and overt lies. Um, it sets a trap. And then also the way it operates is um, divide and conquer. Let's isolate. Let's get let's get someone away from the pack, so to speak. Um, and then also it feeds off of off of passivity, off of someone not doing what they should do. Adam should have jumped in and protected his wife. He should have challenged the serpent, but he said nothing. Now, I realize that some of you uh, may be really uncomfortable with all this talk about sin and rebellion. Um, I'm guessing some of you maybe are not sold on the notion that sin even exists, that evil exists, and that's okay. 
Um, we're really glad that you're here. Um, and I just ask for you to bear with me. And, and I'll say this too, as we kind of move, move on. Um, you might not believe what, what the Bible has to say about the nature of sin and rebe- human sin and rebellion, but I think you would agree with me that what we see next with the consequences of our rebellion has a ring of truth to it. So let's look at the consequences of our sin and rebellion. And one of the first things that we see in verse 7 is that it's immediately followed by shame. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you remember from the passage that we looked at last week, um, or you can look at, if you have your Bible, you can look at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, the creation account ends with Adam and Eve both naked and unashamed. They're not ashamed of each other's nakedness. And then as soon as sin and rebellion enter God's creation, verse 7, they know that they're naked and all of a sudden they're trying to cover up their nakedness. And not only that, so that's the immediate consequence, but with shame comes hiding. Keep reading. When God shows up in verse 8 and they hear him walking, uh, walking towards them, verse 8 says, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, just yesterday, I was down in Charlotte because I had signed up for um, this, this counseling training that a group called the Barnabas Center is putting on uh, called Common, Common, or not Common Grounds, that's something else. Um, it's called uh, Training Grounds. That's what it is. I'm losing my memory in my old age. Um, and one of the things that we started talking about even just yesterday um, was both human dignity and depravity. And part of our depravity uh, means that our response to sin and shame is to hide. And so we actually went around the room, and this made everyone really uncomfortable, um, and just and the, the moderator, the, the person leading it, just asked, how do, how do you hide? And thankfully, he kind of like gave us a little bit of time to think and said, well, well you've known me now for, I mean, we knew him for the last hour. He said, how do I hide? And some brave person said, well, through jokes. And he's like, exactly. Um, I like to make jokes. And so I hide behind jokes and sarcasm. And then we went around the room and, and some people shared that they hide by over-talking. Uh, when they're really uncomfortable or they don't want to talk about something, they just talk a lot, a lot, and really, really fast. Um, I spoke up and said, um, I, I get silent. I get really quiet when I'm hiding. Um, some people said, I work a lot. I just kind of pour myself into work. Um, others said, I work out a lot. I just exercise. Um, some people said, I, I eat my feelings. <laughs> or I just, I turn to food. And one of the things that we realize is that none of those things in and of themselves are bad. It's not bad to be chatty or talkative. It's not bad to be more quiet or reserved. It's not bad. It's actually really good to, to work and to work out and to eat. I mean, these are all good gifts. But, but what we saw is that you could use anything, even good things, to hide behind them. So with sin and with shame comes hiding. And then we keep reading and we see when we're confronted with our rebellion, we actually shift blame. So God, um, 
God calls out to Adam and Eve and says in verse 9, where are you? And he goes on, um, Adam says, I heard you, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself, everything we just talked about. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And look at, look at Adam and then Eve's response in verse 12 and 13. Adam says, the woman, right away he's blaming his wife, the woman who you, he's blaming God, gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So it's everyone else's fault but Adam's. It's Eve's fault, it's God's fault. And then God turns to the woman and says, and asks, what, what is this that you've done? And Eve says, well, the serpent. Serpent deceived me, and I ate. And what's interesting about, about that remark is she, she conveniently leaves out the part uh, in between the serpent deceiving and her eating where she distorts God's word and mistrusts God and is enticed and, and allured and then gives in. She leaves all that, all that out. She said, the serpent deceived me, I ate. Um, I've seen this tactic before. I see it actually quite a bit. Um, I've got two toddlers, two and a half year old and a one year old who I love. I was telling someone, Seth was asking me how, how my family's doing. We actually got a full night of sleep last night, which was amazing. Uh, so we're doing great. Um, but it's not unusual for, um, you know, Amanda and I to be in one part of the house and the girls normally play well. They're fine by themselves. But it's not unusual for us to be in one part of the house, and then all of a sudden we start hearing Cora, our one-year-old, the younger daughter, start crying. And so inevitably, one of us goes to Emma, the older one, who's two and a half, and we go, "What happened?" And and Emma, or we we go, we see we see Cora crying. She's on the ground, and and Emma's got some sort of toy or puzzle or something. We go, "Emma, what happened?" And Emma's response is, "Well, she was." You know, she was trying to take my toy and, and then she fell. <laughs> and, um, we weren't born yesterday. Uh, we, we, we could fill in the blanks. But, but, but here's what I love. It's kind of funny for me to say this. Here's what I love about toddlers who lie and blame shift and omit important information. It demonstrates that the fall really does touch us all. Toddlers don't have to be taught to rebel against their parents. They come like that. Like, just like your iPhones come prepackaged with some operating system, whatever, what are we on, 13 now? I don't know. Human beings come prepackaged with this disposition, this inclination towards rebellion and disobedience. Did you notice how this whole time we've been talking about Adam and Eve's rebellion, but we've been using the first person plural possessive pronoun, our, our rebellion, the nature of our rebellion, the consequences of our rebellion, the tragedy of our rebellion. The point I'm trying to make is that the Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve fell, the whole human race fell with them. When they sinned, it's like their spiritual DNA got corrupted. And they've passed that corrupt DNA on to the rest of us. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, sin 
It came into the world through one man. He goes on to say, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is why what what happened here in Genesis 3 is so tragic. So tragic. It affects all of us. Each and every one of us. And it even affects and touches creation. We see how, how that happens in God's response to the rebellion. Look with me in verse 14. God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then, after cursing the serpent, he turns to the woman, and he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. One of the consequences of our sin is this curse. That in bringing forth children, that's both like labor and delivery, and it's also child rearing. It's going to be painful. And not only that, there's going to be this strife between husband and wife. And then he goes and turns to Adam in 17 and says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Creation itself experiences the curse and the effects of mankind's sin and rebellion. And it makes sense, right? I mean, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were charged to to take care of the creation, to be good stewards, to exercise dominion. And yet after their rebellion and their sin, we see that that even extends to the ground being cursed. And then if this isn't all (laughs) super depressing enough, jump with me to the very last verse that Josh read, the last verse of chapter 3. At the very end, we see that God drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which is an angel or angels, in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Men and and women were kicked out by God from the garden. So this does answer that question that we had. Why aren't we still in Eden? It's because we brought sin and rebellion into the world, and one of the consequences of that sin and rebellion is we've been actually kicked out and expelled from the Garden of Eden. All right, everybody take a deep breath. How are we all doing? I think the, the, the darkest part of this passage is, is, is behind us. We've seen that um, the nature and consequences of our rebellion are tragic, utterly tragic. But what I also want us to see from this passage is the triumph of our Redeemer. And what I want us to see is that the triumph is promised and and that the triumph is fulfilled. So first, how is the triumph of our Redeemer promised? There are these bright glimmers of hope and redemption throughout Genesis chapter 3. Did you catch them? Did you see them? Look with me at verse 15. Part of God's curse to the serpent includes this new reality, this new 
enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And not only that, and between your offspring and her offspring. And what's going to happen? He, the offspring, is going to bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. It's it's a little bit... Um, it's kind of hidden in this poetic Hebrew uh, um, language. But what God is doing is he's promising to destroy that intrusive, lying, crafty serpent through a human rescuer, through a human redeemer. God's sending a warrior to defeat the tempter. That's what we see in clearly in Roman or in, sorry in Genesis 3:15. Not only that, look at verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He recognized that they were naked, that their eyes had been opened, and that they were ashamed. And instead of rinky-dink fig leaves to cover themselves, God graciously covers Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame, truly at great cost to himself. Um, lots of commentators have pointed out that this is the first animal that is sacrificed for human sin. He made garments of skin. Where did that skin come from? It came from one of, one of God's good creatures, one of his good animals that he created. This really came home for me, especially as you think about, um, maybe some of you, this really troubles you and bothers you. It did for me. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system you kind of step back and you and you think about how many lambs and goats and bulls and doves had to be sacrificed, how much blood, all that pain. Like it can seem like is God some monster just out for blood? He's just this bloodthirsty monster. That was really troubling for me until I heard someone say and and, and remind me of this. He said Really simply, he said, a sacrifice isn't truly a sacrifice unless it's something you love. God loves his creation. We saw that last week. It pains him to take the life of any of his creatures. That's a sacrifice. And God makes that sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. And then um, one thing, I don't want us to miss this. I know I'm moving fast, but verse 9, jump back to verse 9. Even God asking Adam and Eve, where are you, is a glimmer of hope and grace and redemption. I mean, does God really not know where Adam and Eve are? I mean, does the creator of the universe not know where they're hiding? Of course not. So why is he asking, where are you? I think it's for Adam and Eve's benefit. What does the question itself communicate? It communicates, I want to know where you are. I want to know you. I want to be with you. And so we see God closing the gap and moving towards his people. One of the things that would have been clear for an ancient Israelite is the connection here uh, between what's going on in the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. And, and really the only thing that I want to highlight is this. When you come to like the passages in scripture, those, those parts that are really hard to get through because they're just 
chapter and chapter and chapter after blueprints and and this is how you build this and this is what's there and just you know the, the layout of the of the tabernacle and temple um it's easy to miss how the tabernacle is set up to be a little moving garden of eden all the garden of eden imagery is found in the tabernacle even down to the the trees and the fruit that that are on, that, that are on the tapestry down to the gold and the onyx that's that's in the garden of eden it's there it shows up again in the tabernacle and here and here's what i want us to see if you're an ancient israelite and you're going to go worship at the tabernacle or at the temple the entrance is on the east side which means you have to travel west the opposite direction of god's expulsion from the garden of eden to get into the tabernacle to worship god you you travel the direction of the curse in reverse and not only that to get in you have to walk past the altar where the sacrifices are made and where there's a priest with with a knife with a sword to make the sacrifice and with the fire to burn the sacrifice and oh yeah He's dressed up kind of like an angel, like a cherubim. That's intentional. It's supposed to remind the ancient Israelites, look, you're coming back into my garden sanctuary to come and be with me. That's what God has provided for his, for his people, even of old, even the ancient Israelites. And so here's the point. Here's what I, here's what we can't miss. The God of the Old Testament was not some harsh, judgmental, punitive deity. And then thank goodness we have our New Testament where we meet Jesus, who's loving and kind and forgiving. What I hope we see is that even the God of the Old Testament, even the God of Genesis chapter 3, is a gracious and loving God who closes the gap and moves towards his people, who makes sacrifice even at his own cost and expense to cover our shame and our sin. That's the God that we meet in Genesis chapter 3. A God who delights to bring light out of darkness, to bring good out of evil. And that's how the whole book of Genesis ends, actually. In Genesis chapter 50, we see a God who brings good out of evil. You might remember Joseph, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and then ultimately elevated uh, second in command uh, to Pharaoh. Joseph tells his brothers at the end of Genesis, look, what you meant for evil against me, God actually meant for good. That many people should be kept alive even as they are to this day. So this is the the triumph that is promised even in Genesis chapter 3, really briefly, what, is it, what does it look like to see the triumph fulfilled? I want to throw two quotes at you. One is Augustine, the other is B.B. Warfield. So Augustine, church father, uh, 300s, bishop, bishop of Hippo, he once wrote that the Old Testament is in the, or sorry, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. 
I'll say that again. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. I think that's really helpful for us, not just tonight, but whenever we come to Scripture, especially the Old Testament. And then the other quote, B.B. Warfield, Princeton Seminary professor, late 1800s, early 1900s. He, I'll paraphrase here, um, he talked about the Old Testament as if it was like a room filled with furniture, but dimly lit. And then he says this, he says, The introduction of light brings into the room nothing which was in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it. Um, I'm sorry, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. And so here's what I, here's what I want us to see. In Genesis 3, God hints at this hope, this glimmer of hope and glimmers of redemption. But in the New Testament, hope bursts forth. Just like we sang about it in Christ alone, that, that hope and glory burst forth in radiant day. And we see that in the Gospels and the Epistles. We see that God really does bring good out of evil. Just as sin and shame and separation from God entered the world through one man who succumbed to temptation in the garden, our salvation, the New Testament claims, would enter the world through another man overcoming temptation in another garden. The Gospels record that, that Jesus and his apostles, his followers, were in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives the night that he was betrayed. Some of you remember the story. It was ultimately Jesus' final test before going to the cross. What does he say when he gets there with his disciples? Stay alert, stay awake, so that you will not enter into temptation. And what happens? They all, they all drop like flies. And at the end, it's only Jesus who stays awake and stays vigilant and overcomes that final test, that last temptation. He's the only one that endures. And that's just a snapshot of his perfect obedience that marked his entire life. Who never gave in to temptation, though he was tempted in every way that we are. And so his obedience actually led him all the way to the cross. The place where he would take on all of our sin, all of our shame, and even our separation. And not only that, he would even take on the curse from Genesis 3. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, uh, Peter says that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And it's interesting that he doesn't say he bore our sins in his body on the cross, but he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's alluding to in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, where Moses says that anyone, anyone hung on a tree is accursed. What we see is that Jesus takes on the curse for us so that you and I would never have to face it and experience it. Well, his perfect obedience in the garden ushers in our salvation. Another garden, the empty tomb, just heralds it all across. As far, as far as this gospel message will travel, the empty tomb in that garden is a sign that Jesus has 
triumphed over our rebellion. 1 Corinthians 15.21 Paul says that for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Don't you see what, what is going on here? Jesus was reversing the curse. He's suffering the consequences of our sin. He's experiencing the shame of being hung naked on a tree and taking on the curse and separation of God so that you and I and anyone who would just turn to him and look to him wouldn't have to. That we would have the same hope that our bodies would be resurrected and redeemed just as his were, his was. All right. We began tonight by asking the question, why aren't we still in Eden? Genesis 3, we see that our first parents rebelled against God and introduced sin and suffering and death and the curse into the world. That's why we're not still in Eden. And, and, you know, for some that's satisfying, but for others, it raises another question or more questions, as in, well, why did God allow any of this? Or, uh, well, where did that evil lying serpent come from if everything God made was good? And kind of all these related questions kind of all fall under this umbrella of the problem of evil. And so in the last two minutes, we're just going to solve the problem of evil right here, right now, so we can all kind of go home satisfied. Um, That's a lie. Uh, No, this is something that theologians and philosophers have been debating for thousands of years. We're not going to solve this just in one second. Um, But if you wanted to ask me, why did God, why did a good, all-powerful God allow this to happen? Why did he allow Adam and Eve to mess up his good creation? Um, at the end of the day, I need to be honest and say, I don't know why. But I do know this, for reasons that are far above and beyond my comprehension, somehow, God chose to reveal himself to us, not just as our creator, but also as our redeemer. He wants to be known as the God who brings good out of evil, light out of darkness. And that is good news for you and for me, because it means that each and every part of our story is going to be used. Even the most tragic, even the darkest parts of our story will be used for God's good purposes and for our good. For our good. I'll end with this. Um, I don't know if this show is still on the air, but... There's this HGTV show, Love It or List It. You guys seen this or heard of it? You know the premise. There's this family. They're in this house. It's either too small for them or too run down. They need a bigger, better house. And so the professionals come in. One's a professional realtor who can find them their dream house. And the other is this professional house designer, rehabilitator. I don't know what her exact exact, uh, job title is. But each and every episode, these two professionals duke it out to try to convince the family to either list their house, sell it, put it on the market, and go buy a new house, or to love it after it's been completely rehabbed, gutted, all new fixtures, all new floors, all the problems solved. And I don't know what the tally is, love it or list it, I mean, how many end up leaving versus how many end up staying, but... Every time I watch that show, 
I'm always rooting for the love it. Like there's something in me that wants those families to stay in their house that has been completely uh, renovated, rehabbed, turned upside down, and is now this beautiful, glorious home for them to enjoy, hopefully for the rest of their lives. The biblical story shows us that God never lists his creation. Genesis 3 shows us that God never lists his creation. He always loves it. And he always loves us. And so if there's one thing that I hope you take away, both from last week's um, talk or sermon and, and then this week's, is that God doesn't make junk. We saw that last week. He makes good stuff. And then this week, I hope that we saw that God doesn't junk what he's made. That he's committed to his creation. He's committed to his people. He doesn't hit the reset button. He doesn't ditch us and then go and, and choose someone else or something else. But he's actually here at work redeeming everything that we've messed up through our rebellion against him. And that should give us hope even in our utter darkness. We see that God is going to use that for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, not sugarcoating our experience of life in a fallen world. Um, as hard as it is to take an honest look at um, where all this terrible, tragic stuff uh, originates, um, I pray that what we leave tonight with is just the reminder that um, you love to, to be the one who rescues and pursues. And I pray that you would give us grace to um, wrestle with any lingering questions or doubts that we might still have. Um, I pray that you would help us to uh, take those questions and doubts and and not hide them or stuff them, but to actually uh, voice them to you and even to invite others into that um, so that we might actually live with hope. Um, hope in uh, Jesus's resurrection, but also hope in our own resurrection and the redemption of our bodies. Um, so would you do that even now by your Holy Spirit? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.